Welcome back. You're listening to In Situ Science, where each episode we meet a different scientist and pick their brains about what they do and why they do it. I'm your host, James O'Hanlon, and this episode I'm chatting with urban ecologist, author, and semi-professional bird feeder, Dr. Daryl Jones. Daryl, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's been fantastic to be on here. Now, I want to take you back a bit because I have a memory from quite a few years ago. I think it was one of the first conferences I went to, maybe at the very beginning of my PhD, an animal behavior conference where you got up and kind of threw out this idea. It was kind of like you were were thinking out loud in your, your conference talk where you were kind of saying to us all, look, we all care about wild animals and we do this weird thing, especially with birds where we feed them. Maybe we should care about that. As scientists, maybe we should we should research that and think about that. And it seems that since I saw you give that talk, that idea has grown into something uh, much bigger than what I heard back then. Goodness, absolutely. That might go back away. Uh, that in, probably is an indication of of how far I've come, in a, in a sense, because um, I would have probably been towing the, the company line at the time, the standard line that everybody in Australia is, a, is supposed to know and, 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 re- and take care of, and that is everybody knows that we shouldn't feed the bird. Everybody knows that mm. in Australia. It's, it's, it's a bigger thing in Australia than any other country in the world, not feeding birds. And yet the participation rate is exactly the same as everywhere else in the world as well. So there's something strange going on there. But it was, I, yeah, you're right, that's a, that's a great question or way to start because that had me thinking... This is a massive thing. I, I, it, I would have probably just about that time have come to realise just what a large-scale activity this was. Now, I knew about it in, in Europe and, and especially North America. Lots and lots and lots of people fed the birds. But in Australia, we all knew that it didn't happen. And yet I was doing research in the suburban environment and discovering every turn that I went, people were feeding the birds. And I thought, well, this is... What's going on? What, and I also thought, as an ecologist, there's a huge amount of additional food being put into the system. Um, that's got to have all sorts of implications for all sorts of things. And so I started just as the pure ecologist thinking, what happens when you add vast amounts of different types of food to the system, especially the urban system, where there's lots of, most of this feeding is happening? And what the, what's that going to do? What, you know, what, what are the implications? What are the consequences of all that? And that's really where, where I started thinking much more seriously about this issue. Well, when you gave that talk, I remember part of it was, was kind of very rough, sort of you know, almost back of a napkin calculations about how much food are we putting out there. And it's definitely not just you know, a couple of slices of apples on the backyard. I mean, what, what sort of numbers are we talking here? Well, uh, in, since then, we haven't actually quantified very much what's happening in Australia. Australia's different, but I've got some extremely um, good data from America where, they, where this is... Uh, it's much more of an industry over there, so that it's, it's possible to actually calculate, you know, sheer quantities and all that sort of stuff. So it is, it is actually in the United States... Well, North America. North America, it is worth $2 billion a year in terms of hardware, feeders... And the food that that is purchased by people in their in their millions, and so I, I, I mean, there's some. I could just tell you great big numbers, and everyone will go, well, that doesn't really mean anything. <laughs> We're talking tons of seed and stuff going out there, right? That's where I'm going to 
to do now is to, is to say probably somebody worked out exactly how many railway containers. So, <laughs> um, you know, uh, one of those big, um, a coal container mm-hmm. weigh, you know, weighs a whole lot of uh, amount. So somebody worked out that every single year food put out for the birds in North America equates to 211,000 railway carriages worth of seed. Two, I mean, 200, it's, that's mind, it's utterly mind-boggling. Yeah. So two things to say about that. All of that food is completely additional to what the birds are normally feeding on. They, they have their normal diet, and then they have this other diet which is provided by humans. Incredible. I mean, that's just going to have a massive amount, a ma- massive effect, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But the other thing is virtually almost like 99% of that food is not naturally part of that diet, the, the birds that eat its diet. It's completely different. All those seeds are not in the normal diet of those birds. Now, that's all right because birds are very adaptable. They're very opportunistic. They can figure out um, what to feed on wherever they are. They've got to change their diet because things come and go all the time. But it, it is just really interesting to think that there's all that food is not part of their normal diet. And so then you start thinking, well, what does all that mean, you know? Well, yeah, when you kind of phrase it like that of saying that this food is additional to their natural diet, I guess we kind of put that in humid terms and think, well, we eat very unhealthy foods that aren't very good for us. Is that what's happening with the birds? And is that where your sort of skepticism might have started? Uh, yeah, it, it was because in a, that's, that's a really important point. So let me just start. Let's, let's just go to the place where it really happens in the largest amounts. And that's where all the, the data comes from. And that's North America or the Northern Hemisphere in general. But because it's been done so lo- for such a long time in such a big way, and it's a massive industry, and there has been an enormous amount of research done on the quality of the food that's available, made available to the birds. So they've done really good. I mean, the nutrition that is provided for those birds is excellent it's really good it's high quality food in almost every case it's appropriate for the birds that eat it all that kind of stuff in australia however because it's a pretty much a forbidden subject and nobody will even admit that we're actually feeding all those birds all this sort of stuff we and and also we simply don't have the little seed eating birds that are the typical birds that go to feeders in the northern hemisphere we've got magpies and crows and butcher birds and kookaburras and all those types of birds and they, most of those don't eat seed. The rainbow lorikeets and the parrots obviously eat seed, but lots and lots of other birds don't eat seed at all. So on one hand, we've got a completely different set of birds, and the, on the other hand, we have no idea what, is, what to feed them because it's a forbidden subject. You can't, no one's done any research. There's no, no um, products really much to speak of that are made with Australian birds in mind. And so we don't have any nutritional information. So when you, when, when you see birds being fed, they're chips being fed to the seagulls and bread for the ducks and, and household whatever um, at home. So that's a really big concern of mine in terms of the nutrition. If we're millions of people in Australia are feeding birds, no doubt whatsoever that that's the case. But they don't know what to feed and there's nothing available that they can't find out any information about what is appropriate. So that's where I, my last book has been all about that. When you say that there hasn't been people developing food for Australian native birds, why then 
uh, can I go to the shops and see a bag of seed that says native bird mix on it? That's a great question because it, I can guarantee you right now that it wasn't made for native <laughs> birds. What, it, what, it, what has happened, it's probably got a picture of a lorikeet or a double bar finch or something. <laughs> and all that is, I mean, not all that is, but it is caged bird, caged bird food for captive birds. People keep budgies and parrots and finches and all that sort of, all that sort of stuff in cages. And so there are plenty of bird lovers and, and aviculturalists who keep birds in cages. So all that food is made by the pet, pet food people for cage birds. But they've twigged, oh, we can probably sell this to the people that are selling, that are feeding the wild birds as well. And so you bung a natural, a native looking bird on the cover and, and the, the content is exactly the same. I, I know that for a fact because we, we went to the, we bought every single product available in Australia called wild bird, anything. And we looked at what was in them and we compared to what they were, what that same company put into the packaging of for the budgies or the, or the canaries or whatever, what else it was. Exactly the same thing. So there's, there's been no specific information, no specific research, nutritional research done appropriate for the, for the, for the wild birds. It probably isn't much of a problem for finches and, and parrots because that stuff has been very well, um, well researched elsewhere. Uh, but everything else, we don't, there's nothing available. You can't, at this point in time, you can't go into the, into the supermarkets and buy magpie food. There's no mm. such thing. So that's why people are feeding whatever they've got. And that, in that case, it's, you know, cheese or bread or mince or something like that. Yeah. I mean, the birds will eat a whole lot of everything. I mean, I have a little family of satin barrow birds in the backyard and they love stealing the dog's food. So they will eat it, but I guess it's not necessarily to say that they should be eating it. <laughs> no, that's exactly right. No, that's, that's right. So, yes, I mean, we've all got, we've all got examples of where birds are eating things that they probably shouldn't. We've got plenty of examples of things that we eat that we probably shouldn't, at least in the quantities that we eat them. So that's, that's, that's part of the deal. So I, I, I'm, part of my mission, if you like, at, at, the, at this moment is accepting the reality that lots and lots of people are feeding birds in Australia and they love it. It's a really wonderful thing for them to do. Some, for some people, it's a profound experience. And especially with lockdown in lots of places in Australia, lots of people have discovered that there are birds all around their house and they never even realised they were there all the time. And so they're trying to feed them and, and now they're discovering, well, what should I be feeding these weird birds? I mean, what on earth would you feed a bowbird? You know, how would you ever find out? There is a place in the back of my book which will tell you exactly what to feed bowbird. <laughs> right, well, we're talking about these books. Uh, what, let's plug them. What are they? Okay, all right. Well, the big book that this all started with was, is called The Birds at My Table. And that's uh, Cornell University Press, 19, uh, 2018, came out just a couple of years ago. Uh, and that's just, that's a big, it's a popular science book. It's meant for anybody at all. It's not technical in any way at all. But it's an exploration of all the aspects to do with humans feeding birds. Not just at home. Um, there's a whole chapter on using food for conservation purposes in wildlife management. You know, you're getting endangered species back, to, to, uh, back on deck by providing food for them. But it's also about all the implications of why, what about all that food being, being consumed by these birds? Is it bad for them? What's it do? Does it spread disease? All those kinds of things that we're always concerned about, as well as the really important stuff on, so why on earth are people doing this in the first place? What, what, why do people get so interested 
deeply passionate about feeding the birds and lots of people are i mean there's just no doubt about it these people you could tell them and people do all the time you honestly you shouldn't be feeding the birds everybody knows it's a terrible thing to do and they just go you don't get it do you you don't <laughs> understand how important this is for people and so they're not, they're not going to stop so so the second book let's go there now was a spin-off from the first one the first one was just not just there was a that was a the first big exploration of the entire feeding birds around the world story. And I gave lots and lots of talks and I thought people would be deeply fascinated about learning about ancient feeding in ancient Egypt and what goes on in the Indian subcontinent about feeding birds for religious purposes. The people in Australia didn't care about that at all. <laughs> Not at all. They said, yeah, okay, fine. But what should I be feeding the magpies? You know, and so it became absolutely obvious. I needed to write another book, and that was about what do we do in Australia because this is a seriously controversial topic. Now, I got exceptionally um, trolled when I first put out the first book. It was people said, what are you doing promoting bird feeding in Australia? And I wasn't. I was just talking about what's going on around the world. Then I thought, well, when I write a book about promoting bird feeding in Australia, I'm really going to get into strife. And what was really interesting is that I've got virtually no, nothing has happened since I put out the second book, which is called Feeding the Birds at Your Table, which just came out last year. And that's, that's explicitly a book about facing up to the realities of the things that we can do wrong and often do wrong. And how can we do it properly? Because people need to know and they need a place to find sensible, reliable, um, sound information about how to feed birds without doing harm. That's what it's for. Yeah, I guess you're not really promoting bird feeding as much as you are saying, look, we're doing it anyway. How can we do it better? It, it became, when I became aware of just the, the scale of bird feeding in Australia, um, it became to me an, unavoidably, uh, an unavoidable ethical question. Now that I know how many people are feeding birds and that a huge proportion of them are feeding terrible things to the birds, and I know that, I must do something about it. I, I, I didn't really have a, a, a choice. This was an ethical problem for me. And so I thought, in that case, I have to write this book and get it out there so that we can, for the benefit of the birds, for the welfare of the birds, I need to, to get something out there. And it seems to have done very well. It's been taken up in massively. So it's, you know, I, I don't want to push this too far, but that thing that I've already said about the, being a, a, a forbidden subject, the amount of information, the, the amount of contact I've had with people who have said, you mean it's all right to talk about feeding birds now? You know, has been shown me it was the right time to do this. Without you know, going through and reading your entire book, can we go through some, uh, what are some uh, hot tips? So uh, to start with, what are some uh, cardinal sins of, of bird feeding? I'm assuming, you know, bread, throwing bread to the duck to the pond is, is number one. Yeah, well, it's not number one. That's because despite what we, you and I might say here on, on this, we, and even though we've got an audience of several billion, um, no one's going to stop feeding the ducks. I mean, grandma's <laughs> going to take the kids down to the ducks tomorrow, even if they've been listening to this program, and they're going to still feed the ducks. It's a terrible thing to do. Um, bread, it's not nothing wrong with bread itself. Bread is a beautiful thing for humans to eat. It's made for humans. Um but it's not, it's, it doesn't have enough nutrition and it's inappropriate for birds. So 
all that there's two things that happens when ducks feed on lots of bread at the down at the pond. They just fill up on almost nothing. They can fill up on a, on a really bulky type of food, and it fills up their gut with no nutrition or very little nutrition. So that's the first problem, and that can lead to a whole array of, of physiological problems. The most ghastly is called angel wing, and it's where they've they've got. I can't remember, and it, it's too technical to talk about right here. But there's an imbalance of some, you know, too much phosphorus or not enough calcium or something or other. But it changes the way their their wings, their, their feathers grow, and they they if they eat too much of too much bread, they get a really terrible imbalance in these important proteins, uh, and that changes the way the feathers grow, and then they can't fly. And so not only are they these, so if these are water birds, typically you know ducks and swans and duck and those sorts of things down at down at the pond if they can't fly away then they can't even get away from the the artificial food that they're being assessed you know, that's available to them at these public places so it's even worse so it's a really exasperating thing but the other thing about all that bread is that bread has a lot of phosphorus in it and every if you just go to the at the a sunday afternoon to the local park you know, there's just layers of bread floating on the on the surface with with ducks going walking around thinking, I've had too much bloody bread today. Um, but it just fills up and it causes eutrophication of those, um, of the, uh, you know, too much nutrition. And, and that leads to, you know, um, just poor water, water quality and a, a growth of uh, algae and all sorts of things can go wrong as well. So it's really mucking around with the, the whole ecosystem of, the, of those ponds. And is it, would it be un Australian to ask if chips and seagulls are just as bad? They're just as bad, absolutely. Um, and we do have really good evidence that, um, that the seagulls that eat the chips are overweight and have too much cholesterol. Now, that's not much of a surprise, really. You know, look at the people who eat chips and they probably have exactly the same issues. Um, but, you know, that's, I, it's, it's virtually impossible to, to not feed when the, when the, when the duck comes up and looks you in the eye, when the seagull comes up and stands on the edge of your table, <laughs> what are you going to do? You know. So I, I, I recognise that. I mean, I've I've preached this gospel forever, and I've been guilty of feeding chips to the ducks and the and the and the, and the seagulls myself. But this was long before I saw the light and realised that there were some things that you probably shouldn't do. No. So, but probably the a, a much more important. So the really really important thing. Two things that I need to say about this, about what feeding and the, and the consequences. The first is the biggest concern that I have and many people have is the spread of disease. And that is a genuine and important concern. What we do is when we put out food in one place, you know, in a, in a feeder, I've got a feeder out here in my house and it's just a, it's just a bowl. And I put food in it every morning and a whole bunch of different species of birds come to that single spot and eat the food, defecate all over the place. And if there's any um, sick birds among them, and we're very conscious of this at the moment, no social distancing, no cleaning of hands in that sort of environment. Um, if there, any of them have got a disease to spread, it'll spread from that instantly. There's no question about it. And it's completely artificial. No, in nowhere does any bird in it. And the birds that are coming to that feeding table would never meet. They would never have anything to do with each other. Yet they're coming because I've provided an artificial source of food for them. So we're doing something really artificial and we are 
making the op- the possibility of spreading disease so much higher because of do it because of doing that. So the first thing we have to do is take that really seriously. If you're going to feed birds, you've got to be utterly and appallingly clean about it. Every single day you have to clean it off, thoroughly wash it. You, you, we must minimise the chance of spreading disease. Really, or don't, or don't feed. Just if you can't do that, you mustn't feed. That's that's probably the most important thing to say. And so, if people are interested in feeding the birds at their table, I mean, obviously, uh, spreading out the food, cleaning up the food dishes is is important. But in terms of what you're actually giving them, how do people know the right way to go? Do they need to be able to identify those birds in their backyard first, or what? What should people do? Yeah. So, well, well. For the majority, I would say the majority of people who are feeding birds know what their birds are, mm. you know, and it's, and I can tell you right now, the number one bird being fed in this, in this country right now is the Australian magpie. Most people, the most commonly fed bird in the whole country is the Australian magpie. Now, so that means that they are definitely not eating seed. That's for sure. So they're eating all sorts of things, meaty things. I mean, they eat worms and grubs normally, but so we don't, you can't go and get worms and grubs typically from your supermarket. So what you can get is cheese or uh, mince. Mince is very common. It's probably the commonest type of food. Just a cheap meaty thing that everybody has in the, in the fridge for tonight's um, spag bowl. And so everybody's got a little bit of that and they can put it out. It's simple and convenient. Unfortunately, mince is a terrible thing to feed birds. Now we don't eat just mince. If we have a mince meal, you don't just eat mince. It would be horrible, horrible. So we add a billion things to it to make it actually taste like something. Just mince is not, does not have enough calcium. It's very important. If the birds eat too much of just a meat product, they will not get enough calcium, and that will mean that their overall um, calcium levels will be too low for their bodies. And... We need calcium. Every, every animal needs calcium to build up bones and in birds to you to make feathers as well. If they don't have enough in their diet, they'll withdraw it from the calcium stores, which are inside the living bones. And if that happens too much, you can get brittle bones, bent bones, bent, bent beaks as well. All sorts of things can go wrong. So that's a really serious issue if the birds eat too much of it. So I'm really advocating that we should w- not provide too much mince there are some products which you can you can now get um, which are insectivorous types of food that you can get from specialized like some of the big um, pet warehouse food type places you can get some of these things uh, and they're made for insectivorous birds um, like like magpies and kookaburras and those sorts of things which are which are really good to use but in the meantime it's probably okay and sensible to eat to provide just some some cat or dog food that's that's better it's not the the equivalent but it's it's better so uh, what i should say next though is really important the most the biggest concern that people who feed birds and people who don't feed birds and are adamantly opposed to it the biggest concern that all of those people have is whether the birds are going to become dependent on this food we're providing are they just going to give up feeding naturally altogether and and just well and if you stop feeding they're all just going to starve to death and that's often been suggested in fact if you go to some of the websites a feeding websites all around the world you'll see the golden rule of bird feeding and that is once you start you mustn't stop 
Now, I suspect that is a rule that was invented by the marketing people <laughs> to, to, to make sure that people still buy plenty of their own products. Because what we do know is, so that's a really important concern, are the birds becoming dependent on the food that we provide? Really, really good news. Very well studied this. I've done some of this work myself in, here in Australia. There is absolutely no evidence that the birds become dependent on our food. In the majority of cases, the birds out there feeding on, on, on our, on our, at our feeders, the majority of those birds' diets still comes from natural sources. Well and truly over 75% of the food they will provide, they will, they will acquire on an, on a daily basis comes from natural, natural sources, even though they can go to a meat tray that's just right next to where they live. They still, they might eat a bit of it, but it's just a snack. It's just a fill up at the end of the day. They still spend the first three or four hours of the day feeding on completely natural sources. So that's a really big relief because there will be people who are listening to this program who have not been able to get, oh no, this is, this is quite genuine. They, they, they realize, they think that they can't go on holidays because the birds will all starve to death. They can't, there are people who, who've said, I, I just simply can't leave the house because the birds are obviously so desperately hungry that they're all waiting for me to feed them. No, they're not. In fact, I've got really bad news for those people. You know, your birds that come to your place to feed on the food that you lovingly provide for them, they're probably going up to six places up the street as well. So you can relax. The birds are still getting most of their food from natural resources. They don't actually need the food that we're providing for them. And I think that's a really important thing to hear. It's for us. The last words in that first book I mentioned, The Birds at My Table, the, the last words are, we think the feeders are for the birds. The feeders are actually for us. It's about our enjoyment that this is happening. So there's no evidence to suggest that uh, if you're assuming feeding is done properly, that it could benefit bird populations in some way. I imagine, you know, in the middle of a drought or after bushfires, people might think that they're, they're going to do their bit and help out the birds. Is there anything to suggest that's going on? That's a very different situation. So everything I've described so far is just a normal year in a normal place in a normal backyard. No, obviously, after a bushfire, after a drought, during a drought, after a, a cyclone in North Queensland, after the terrible um, snowstorms that they had in Europe a couple of years ago, um, any of those sorts of things, extreme winters, anywhere, anything that's extreme, those birds undoubtedly will be desperately hungry. And, and there's no doubt, and it's, it's a proven fact, that those by feeding those birds appropriately, you allow them, give them a much higher chance of survival over the winter. So lots of birds, there's been lots of studies done on the small birds which do not migrate away. So most, most of the little birds in the northern hemisphere where it gets really cold in winter, most of the little birds sensibly get out of there and go to where it's warm to avoid the, the stark, terrible winters where there's no food. But the ones that stay behind, which don't migrate, they really do benefit. They are much more likely to survive if they are provided with food. So that's, so that, of course, there is extreme situations where you need to be a bit sensible. If you are uh, interested in doing this in a way that can help birds, obviously food is only one possible thing we could be providing them with. What else could we be doing? Water, absolutely. I mean, there's no, in a dry continent like Australia, there's no reason why anybody who's got a balcony or a backyard or anything or a farm or anything like that should not have some sort of uh, a bird bath just to stick out 
you've got to keep it clean again. Um, it's not so rigorously as a, as a food, food tray, but uh, you do need to be able to clean it out and provide food. And that's a, one, that's a really non-controversial way to see birds up close. You know, they, birds anywhere will, would, would like, you know, if you just think about where the open water is available in, a, in anywhere, there's, there's often not that much available, especially in, a, in the drier parts of Australia. So, yes, I really encourage everybody to get a water to some sort of water feature or a bird bath or something and stick that in the backyard. You've mentioned a lot that uh, we really don't know a whole lot about uh, the dynamics of this in Australia because we have such unique uh, bird fauna. So we need to do a lot more research as a, an urban ecologist, as someone who studies you know, interactions of people and wildlife. Is is this a hard sell to say we need to study bird feeding or, or is it seen as a little bit quaint? Uh, it's probably seen as a little bit quaint um, because a lot of people who aren't directly engaged in bird feeding... Well, well, let me just say, bird feeding is a very personal thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just go to the shops, buy some appropriate product, come home, put the food on my little feeder out the back and watch the birds in my own backyard. I don't know what anybody else is doing and I don't really care. But that's, that's a really, it's a very private activity and nobody realises that there's billions of people all over the continent, all over the, the planet doing exactly what I'm doing or in my own street or in my own house, in my own yard, or sorry, all around. What we, when you start to realise that vast numbers of people are doing it all over the place, you realise that you are part of a very large network of people providing all this artificial food. And so then it becomes a massive experiment, an, an ecological experiment on a global scale is what I've described it as somewhere. Um, because it's, it's this big thing that we don't know what the outcomes are. Um, so you've got to be very, very conscious that, that you're, it's not just you. That is doing this. You said that the bird feeders are for us. That this interaction you know, benefits us and makes us happy and, and fulfilled and connected to nature. Are there downsides for us? Uh, are there downsides for us? Um, I guess there's the 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 probable possibility of na- of uh, animal-borne diseases, but in most cases that's a pretty rare thing. You'd have to be it's much more likely to get them from cage birds because you're in there breathing the breathing the, the air around them, that sort of stuff. So, I'm, I'm thinking a lot more simply. I remember the first time I tried feeding the cockatoos out of my uh, <laughs> apartment balcony. That was great for about two days until they tore apart the entire balcony. <laughs> now, that's, that's, a, that's a very specific and very Australian experience. I mean, it doesn't happen anywhere else. Now, well, that, that's, that, that's a good one to, to talk about because... There are some birds you honestly do not want to encourage. Um, and too many people, in fact, lots of people I know, um, have had that unfortunate experience of having the white, co- the sulfur crested cockatoos start to come to your place. And if you, and then when you, if you don't keep feeding them or they don't feed them enough, they just start to demolish your house. <laughs> um, and that's because they are, they demolish everything that they can chew. So they're normally us sitting up in a tree demolishing the tree, but when it's your wooden ledges to your uh, balcony railings, then you can see that there's some serious damage. So, yes, yeah, sulfur crested cockatoos are one of those birds that should not be encouraged, and too many people have learned the hard way about that. When um, when the book the Feeding the Birds at Your Table came out, the uh, the people the people the art people 
involved in the in the publication, their first the first bird they were going to put on the cover was a sulfur crystal cockatoo, and I just went, <laughs> no, no, do not put that bird on there, absolutely not. So they they didn't realize they just thought it was a nice looking bird. So yeah, we, we that, I got that one before it was too late. But I guess these our interactions with native native animals are inevitable, and they're only going to increase as our cities are expanding and as our cities are becoming greener, we kind of have to expect this, right? Absolutely. So what you will have is, and we are having all the time, is there is an increasing number and and abundance of these native animals living among us, right in the suburbs, right down the CBD, in the middle of Australian cities. It's extraordinary. When you go to some of the big big cities over in, in other parts of the world, you simply don't encounter so many native animals. I mean, whenever I've got uh, overseas visitors that come to Brisbane where I live, without a doubt, they are gobsmacked, especially because they're nearly, nearly always biologists or ecologists or something like that. When they see a tree in my street with 50 rainbow lorikeets uh, screeching their heads off, or a king parrot, or a or a or a sulphur crested cockatoo landing on the roof, or you know, they just simply can't believe that these giant, gorgeous, stunning, extroverted, crazy birds are just everywhere. You know, um, Melbourne's got six different types of lorikeets in the in the streets, um, and it's it's extraordinary. So what we have ch- over the last thirty years or so, we have gotten over the. Uh, obsession with having European style gardens with rose bushes and, and a couple of gladiolas. And we've now got native plants of all sorts. And that has basically replicated and made the, that made the vegetation, the habitats in our suburbs much more diverse than they are in the bush nearby. So there's a bigger variety of native, native plants in my backyard than there is in the forest that's about a hundred meters away because we planted plants from anywhere in, in Australia and stuck them in there because they look nice and have got nice colourful flowers. Now there's some really serious downsides to that and one of them is lots of these plants in Australia that have big flowers are nectar bearing plants. They provide nectar and pollen and there is a, there's a, lots of birds and mammals that love to eat nectar and pollen in this country and two of them are very important. One of them is the rainbow lorikeet I've already mentioned they are now the commonest bird in most cities in Australia because entirely because we planted so many nectar-bearing plants. And they've got, they can just feast all day long on vast amounts of nectar that are always available. Not like in the bush where there's a strict growing time when the flowers are available just for a couple of months. The cultivars that, of grevilleas and clistamins and all the other things that we have, those, those cultivars which, are, which are, have been developed flower all year round because humans love to have flowers and nice showy d- displays. And the birds that like those have gone berserk. So rainbow lorikeets are now the commonest bird. But there's another small honey eater, which has done very, very well indeed. And that's the infamous noisy honey eater, noisy miner. And they are everywhere. And anybody that knows anything about birds in anywhere knows that noisy miners hate everything with a pathological hatred. And so if you've got noisy miners, you've got nothing else. They just chase everything away that's even about their own size or smaller. And so you, they are now, you know, they're regarded technically 
as a threatening process in Australia. They're one of the worst. They're up there with clearing habitat and, and uh, disease and mammalian predators. The presence of a native honey eater is a threatening process for Australian biodiversity. Extraordinary. And we've encouraged that because of the plantings we've put in our own garden. I mean, I remember growing up in the suburbs and I remember all you used to see was maybe common miners and house sparrows. And it's been this huge shift in populations. So it's not just a, a succession thing. You think it it's, comes down to our, our planting practices. Oh, that, that's the planting practice is just part of it. Um, but as you, as you say, well, everywhere in, in Australia, well, not everywhere, but lots of places in Australia, for example, um, well, I did my honours on the urban birds and it was concentrating on the introduced birds and that was the sparrows, starlings, blackbirds, green finches, goldfinches, all these little little introduced birds. And at the time, back in the 80s, everybody assumed that they were just going to expand and slowly replace all the natives. Well, the opposite happened. Almost all of those things, apart from some of the rural lands, you know, where, where was the last time you saw sparrows? Sparrows in Brisbane have just vanished. They they, they were the commonest bird mm. in a couple of you know a couple of decades ago. They're gone now. They're anywhere in Brisbane. Um, the starlings are only found on the outskirts of some of the country areas, and lots of those other birds. And in fact, in the time that I've been living here, and I've only been in I've been in Brisbane for thirty years. I used to come from a country town in New South Wales, but when I came here, there were many more spotted doves than introduced dove. Than there are than there were there are now because in that time the native crested pigeon has become the the typical pigeon of the suburbs. You see them everywhere, and there's much less of the spotted dove. So they, they the opposite has happened that everybody was assuming would happen, which is extraordinary. I, I keep having to remind myself, yeah, how how I take our native birds for granted. Like you said, just looking at and seeing something like a sulfur crested cockatoo, the idea of, of simply a parrot in your backyard in somewhere like America or Europe is mind blowing. Oh no, absolutely. It is. We, we, we do need to remind ourselves of just how, how lucky we are. The, the, the diversity in the suburbs of the capital cities of this country are just extraordinary, but we're, we're, we're just too used to it to, really appreciate it. So I'm really hoping that people will have another look. And, and one of the things that hopefully will have happened as of people being stuck at home for, for months is they are, there's a more of an appreciation of just what's around them, which is because it's extraordinary. We're so lucky to have them all here. I feel like the, the changes in our, our cities and these inevitable interactions with wildlife are kind of changing science itself as well. I, I, I know for a while, it kind of felt like ecology was something you did out in the middle of nowhere in a forest not connected to people and then there was this other little tiny field of urban ecology do you think there's still two separate fields or is urban ecology just ecology now this has changed dramatically i mean i I was one of the earliest per people that did anything. We didn't call it urban ecology at the time. I, I was just interested in the birds that lived in my country town, and, I, and that's what I studied for my on, my honours. And most of the people around me thought that was really weird, but it was, as I said before, it was kind of a more or less concentrating on the, the fact that there was lots of these introduced birds in the bird community there. But later on, 
when I became a behavioural ecologist, we got really interested in studying the, the, the behaviour of animals in their natural environment. The message was very clear. It was, if you want to know what animals really do properly, you've got to get way out of town. You've got to get right away from all human influences because you've got to be, be aware that anything that's to do with humans is artificial and unnatural. Well, of course, what's, what's, what's urban ecology? Urban ecology is where the people, where the animals live with the people. I've ch- this, this notion has changed completely, not, by, not for everybody, but it's changed completely now. Basically, urban ecology is just ecology studied where people live in large numbers. Um, there, isn't a, a mo- there isn't a centimetre on this planet that isn't affected by humans in some fashion. You know, the centre of Antarctica has got chemicals which were produced in China, right in the <laughs> middle of it. Uh, it's just a, a grade. We have changed the entire planet. It's now known as the, this era is now known as the Anthropocene, the human-dominated geological era. We've changed everything, and we just have to fa- face that fact. So there's two things you can do with that. You can say, it's all screwed and we're all, we're all you know, it, we've, we've stuffed the entire place. Or you could say, what I'm, what I'm saying is, that just means that we are part of nature. You can't, there's nowhere you can go. I can't breathe this air, eat that food I'm having tonight for dinner, drive my car with fossil fuels, live in my wooden house. What part of that is nothing to, is not nature? It's all nature. Every, everything around us is nature. There's nothing not natural. It's just because I'm a human doesn't mean I'm not doing things naturally. So we've got to completely rethink the, what nature and natural means because we are in it and we can't be, can't do anything about it. Yeah, this whole idea that you can go and study animals without any human effects on them is quite impossible. Humans are so pervasive, I guess. All ecology is urban ecology in a sense. It, it, it pretty much is. It's certainly human ecology or human-influenced ecology. You know, mm. That's right. I mean, we now know that the very presence of a human observer anywhere changes what the animals do. So, yeah. So you've studied lots of different types of uh, interactions between humans and wildlife, including things like uh, road ecology and the effect that roads have on animals and their populations and things. Are you a are you an optimistic urban ecologist? Uh, urban ecology is one of the places where there are really good things happening. Um, the animals seem increasingly, uh, pretty much every month or so. I'm utterly astounded to learn that somewhere in the world, some completely unexpected species has just said, I'm going to live with humans from now on, and they better get used to that. Um, it's, it's absolutely extraordinary. Probably the most startling example of that happening here, where I live in Brisbane, is the bush stone curlews. This is a really weird animal, really tall, large, huge eyes, nocturnal, odd really, really <laughs> odd-dwelling, um, ground-dwelling animal. I would have said it was the quintessential animal not to make it in the city. It, how could it possibly survive? It's just too weird. It's too vulnerable. And everywhere else in southern parts of Australia, it's just about extinct. You know, it gets eaten by foxes all the time. In every park, every second park at least, in Brisbane, and very common up in the northern parts of, of Queensland, bush stonekillers are everywhere you can hear their eerie calls every night during the breeding season it's just bizarre so 
there are increasingly animals of their own volition. They've made they've made the transition to saying, I know I have been, my species has been sensibly concerned about people. Good reason to be. They're probably going to eat you or kill you or drive you away. But if you can overcome that innate fear of humans, you that opens up the possibilities of so much more access to a huge number of resources, backyards, people's compost heaps, all the scraps that we throw around, places to nest. You know, there's so many things that the urban environment provides for animals. If only you can get over that problem about being scared of, scared of, of people. So that's going on all the time. So I am actually an... It's easier to be an optimistic urban ecologist than it is to be just a normal ecologist because there's <laughs> plenty going wrong in terms of the ecology of the planet. Mm, I've, I've always loved Bushstone curlews. Maybe it's because I don't live in Brisbane. They're not screaming in my bedroom window at strange hours. I guess would they be the uh, equivalent of, of Ibis in a place like Sydney? No, they're not, they're, they're not like that in the sense of being scavengers in everybody's face, no. They're still, they're still reticent, you know. But they've they've somehow you don't they don't come come up to you. They will never. You the day that a bush stone curlew comes up and demands your sandwich in the park <laughs> will be a very interesting day. But that's that's unlikely to happen for quite some time yet. No, they're still they're still very quiet and shy and stay off in the in the quieter parts. But they're everywhere. They are really they've been a very successful bird. So having spent all these years doing research, you've for most of that, stuck to the, the more traditional ways of communicating your research and writing. Journal articles that go in, uh, scholarly papers that no one ever reads, but you've now gone through a bit of a, a sea change and you're spending a lot of time writing popular science books. What, what spurred that change in approach? Uh, quite a long time ago, I decided, I realised that it's all very well and the re university requires it as part of our jobs to do research and then publish in the journals. That's normal. That's what all academics need to do and have to do. And your promotion depends on doing that sort of thing. That's fine. But I, was, I became very aware when lots of my non-university friends and, and family um, would say, what? What do you do? You know, what the hell? What, what, what do you do? How can that, you know, what do you do? And so I realized that there was no point in sending them the article I just published in a learned journal. Journal. I thought, well, those sorts of people really need to hear about it in a non-technical way. So I started very early on. Every time I would, I made it a, a, a kind of pledge. Anytime I published a scientific article, I would write a popular version of it. No technical language, easy to understand, very simple nice pictures, not too much writing, and, and have it appear in a, in a magazine or something like that. And there was lots of places you could do it in those days. And a little bit down the track, I ended up being invited to have a column in every issue of Australia, um, Wildlife Australia magazine, which, which is still being published. Lots of magazines have vanished, but that's been out there. There was Australian Geographic and there was lots of, lots of magazines were around, and I wrote for them all the time. So there was lots of those. And then I, then I got this a column where, where I wrote about urban ecology every issue. And that was fantastic. And that, that, it, that showed me that people, they weren't reading my journal articles like as normal, uh, but lots of people were responding to those ones. So I became, I kind of had the, I had to have 
two compartments in my brain. One was the write the boring science and the other one was write the accessible, friendly, non-technical stuff. So I developed a style that was able to, able to, to write in that way. And then I thought, well, why, why not do this in a, in a bigger scale? And so I then started writing a couple of, well, I wrote a book about um, magpies, uh, which, which con con condensed all the research that we'd been doing about aggressive magpies and all the things we'd learned. And again, made that um, my readership was, audience was ordinary people who were having problems with magpies and needed to understand what was going on. And we, we, I thought we had a really good message to sell and we discovered some really useful, important things to know. And that worked really well. That was that was went really well, and then, and then I did another one on a slightly less 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 popular, but another one on the mound building birds, the brush turkeys and the mallyfowl and those birds, and that was called Mound Builders. But then the first time I really took this seriously was the book that we've already mentioned, the feeding the birds at, at my table, and that was the first genuine big, very serious not no not very serious. Definitely popular science book, a, a, an actual book completely based on research that had been published in all the best journals, but written in a style that anyone could understand and read. And that went really well. And then, of course, the next book came along. And so ever since then, the, the response to those books was so extraordinary that I thought, There's, I've got to keep doing this. And, and, and why? Not because you know, I, I want to sell lots of books. That's not at all what it's about. It's really about, I think I need to tell people the exciting and interesting stuff that's been going on in the universities in the, in the research we do. We, if, we, if you're lucky enough to study, re to do research, you really do need to tell people about how amazing it is. And I think some of the stuff that we've done is really exciting and really worth telling people. So that's now, I'm, I'm definitely on the, on, on the, writing as a popular scientist thing i'm about to finish one book and i've already started the next one so and that will be you know really pumping them out now i've got to i'm getting towards the end of my career i've got to do this fast <laughs> and, and i mean we can believe you when you say it's not about selling books i mean let's face it you're a you're a big wig at a university you don't you don't need to make a living off of your books <laughs> but it does i mean Writing a, a popular science article is one thing. Writing a book is hard. It's a lot of work. Yeah, yeah. How... Especially when, especially when you did what I did. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> um, I wrote the birds, the the birds at my table. I wrote the birds at my table. Uh, with no publisher, I just wrote an entire. 120,000 uh, word book with no publisher. And then I spent a year knocking on doors, metaphorically speaking, um, and nobody was interested in my book. And I just thought, I have just wasted uh, several years of my little, you know, little time that I've got writing a book that nobody wanted. So it, eventually, though, it, I, I finally got a publisher who said, Dad, this is, this is exactly what we need. And, and, said we'll we'll promote it and it worked really well and ever since that that, that there was a year there where i was just thought i've completely wasted my time this has been a total disaster no one cares about this book uh and then it, then it all changed overnight when somebody said no this is a great book and we'll we'll publish it and promote it and i haven't been haven't stopped since i mean it's a good point you, you often have people who see other 
popular science books and then they look at you and go, why, why don't you write one of these? Do, do publishers want scientists writing books? Absolutely. Um, I, I originally had, I won't mention any names, but I, um, I got uh, a very, very esteemed university press from England. You can probably make a few <laughs> guesses there. Uh, who said, oh, well, we'll have a look at your book. And when they got back to me, they, the person who was in charge of assessing manuscripts to see whether they might publish them says, well, it's, it really was good. It was great to read, but it's a bit low brow for us. We, we just publish academic books. And it was like, well, they didn't actually care about whether book people wanted to read it. They just wanted to publish really dry, dusty academic books that three people would buy a copy of. And it just seemed really strange to me that that would be the case. But um, no, there's uh, if you if you there's plenty of plenty of people trying to write popular science and not doing it that well. My in my opinion, they they still are writing like scientists, but just using less big words. But it still isn't easy to read. So you still have to be a writer to do mm. this properly. Yeah. So somehow or other, and I think I I don't doubt that years of writing a column. With a partic- in a particular style, got me thinking about how to do that best, and uh, I think that's I was just really lucky, fortuitous. I didn't none of that was planned, of course. But when I finally got around to writing a book-sized thing, um, I had a style that I could w- would work for me. And it's not just about uh, uh, scientists using big words. The way you're taught as a scientist to write is kind of the complete opposite of how everyone else is taught to write. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, 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 if I was going to s- s- condense, distill exactly what I'm on about, it's about communication. Mm-hmm. It's about trying to get across the ideas so that that's really clear to so other somebody else who can then go, oh, I see what you're talking about, as opposed to can I hide completely behind unreadable verbiage so that you can't actually understand because that'll make me feel like I'm really clever or something like that. <laughs> I mean, have you ever tried to read sociology? <laughs> it's almost as though they don't want you to know what's going on. <laughs> In terms of your, like you said before, yeah, your day job is a university academic. And like you said, your, your currency in terms of your own uh, professional output are these you know, fuddy-duddy academic papers. But spending so much time writing books, how have, have your, your uh, colleagues and your higher-ups felt about you doing this uh yeah i have to be very careful about how i do this i mean i don't i'm sure they won't be listening to this it's fine (laughs) (laughs) no no i mean this is this is the weekends and holidays and after hours and mostly that sort of stuff every now and again like at the moment when i'm trying to finish one book i'm spending a bit of bit more time on the on the final chapters than i probably would be but i've still got to do my 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 job and Mm. at the moment that's learning how to give lectures online and, you know, all that kind of stuff, which has been very challenging. And I've also got a horrifyingly hard, not hard, um, time-consuming academic uh, bureaucratic series of jobs. Um, you know, I'm chair of all sorts of committees and, and I'm a, dep- a deputy director and, and acting director of two completely different research entities, which takes tons of time and lots of stuff. And so... Yeah, I've, I've still got to do my day job, as you say, but mm-hmm. somehow I've got to squeeze in the time to do the, do the book. 
Would you recommend other academics write books? I think if you've got a topic that you want to dis- you know to get out there, please do. And 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 I think there's there's been a really big change. When I first when I would get hauled, go in for my annual how are you going talk with my with some supervisor of mine, which you, you know everybody has to do, you know. So how have you been going in your how's your career going? How can we help you or do we think you're doing a good job? I would always get someone saying, "Well, I'm looking at your CV here, and you've been publishing enough. Yeah, that's okay. But you you are wasting your time publishing all this article stuff. Well, what? Why don't you just concentrate on the science? I heard that for decades, and I took no notice <laughs> of it at all at the time. I just thought, no, I've just got to keep doing it. It's totally different now. I mean, we've got the conversation, for example, mm-hmm. which is which is a if you like a newspaper filled with academics writing about what they know in a really passionate and wonderful way. And so this has changed completely. So those very people who said I was wasting my time, not those people because they've long retired, but <laughs> their equivalents are going, hey, you should be writing for the, for the conversation or putting your stuff out in the magazines because we want the public to see this sort of stuff. There's a whole unit at the university and every university which, which promotes to the public great stuff that people have been discovering. New scientific studies have come out in some journal and then they come and interview you uh, and put it on their website so that the public can see it. So it's changed completely from the public. We don't care about the public at all. We're just scientists who do our stuff and talk to other scientists. Now to now know we need to show the public that we're doing great stuff, exciting stuff and, and useful stuff. So that has absolutely changed. And you said you had another couple of books in the works. Uh, can we get any sneak peeks, any hints of what you're working on? Yeah, so uh, an extension of urban ecology I, is, is, is a very specialised area, which is called road ecology. This is um, how we can we take all the information we can get on things like the movement of animals and disturbance of animals and all those sorts of things. How can we get animals safely through a landscape which has been completely subdivided, fragmented and isolated by roads everywhere? So there's this, this road ecology field is a, a hybrid multidisciplinary approach to bringing everything together, landscape ecology, road design people, engineers, everybody. How can we allow there to be natural flows of biodiversity despite the roads being there. So it's really much about how can we build and design specialised overpasses, underpasses, glider poles, ladders that, rope ladders that connect the canopy. How can we let animals still continue to go across the road safely without causing car accidents? So there's a, there's a safe road safety side of this as well as a biodiversity safety side of this. I guess it's probably similar to what you were saying before. People are going to feed birds no matter what we tell them to or not. People are going to be driving cars, whether there's impacts or not. So how can we do it better? Not change that at all. So that, that holds, that, that's what I've been doing for the last probably 10, 15, 15 years, actually. My primary interest has been on the road things. And I've been very, very fortunate getting lots of research done on how, that, how to do that properly. I've been all around the world and discovered what they do. And as a result of all that experience, this new book is about road ecology. It's actually about... Um, the, the subtitle is, uh, Can We Reverse the Global Impact of Roads and Traffic? Its actual title is A Clouded Leopard in the Middle of the Road. Uh, and that refers to 
one of the rarest mammals on the planet that I discovered standing in the middle of the road in the middle of the rainforest in Borneo. Because I'm, I'm very lucky. Up until this year, I've taken students every year to Borneo to the middle of the jungle where there, it's never been clear, there's never been anything. And there was a tiny little road going through the middle of it. And that's where I saw this, this clouded leopard. A year later, it had been cleared 100 metres on either side to put this massive road through the middle. So it was a very poignant moment, and that's where the title comes from. It's a very, very symbolic sign of the times right there. <laughs> well, uh, so how's it going? How many tens of thousands of words have you left to go? <laughs> I know I've got, I've got a chapter and a half to go. So it's due Wonderful. at the end of the year. Um, I was, this is a very, so I already told you that I spent a year trying, knocking on doors, you know, metaphorically knocking on doors, trying to get somebody to be interested in my book. Um, but Cornell University Press, who are a, a fantastic press, they're an academic press, but they understand about the importance of communication. And they said, this is great. We love the food, bird feeding book and they were brilliant and they published it. So it's been published around the world, but in, by different publishers, they just license out the, the, um, the text. So in Australia, it's pre, um, published by New, New South in, in Australia. Uh, but they said, well, have you got any more books? And I went, well, actually, so this new book has been them coming to me. And so that's, right. a very, that's a very different prospect. But now, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm utterly naive when it comes to the mechanics of the bird, of the uh, publishing world. So I very, very sensibly got an agent who deals with all that stuff. I have no idea. They, I, other authors have told me, unless you get an agent, you'll be eaten alive. They'll just de completely devour you and you won't have any idea what you're doing. Get an agent and that's all there is to it. So thankfully, that's what I've done. How did you get the agent? <laughs> uh, well, I tried lots of different people. Um, oh, she actually contacted me. Yeah. She contacted me and said, uh, would you be interested? And I thought, You're, it was just good timing. Yeah. yeah I think you're onto something here, Daryl. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll have to keep an eye out for this next book coming. And who knows? Maybe we should have you on again to... We, did, we barely touched road ecology. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, there's, plenty to, there's a plenty to be talked about there, that's for sure. <laughs> right, well, it was a pleasure to, to, to pick your brains. I really enjoyed it. Fantastic. Thank you very much. That was Professor Daryl Jones. You can follow him on Twitter at MagpieJonesD. And make sure to check out his two books, The Birds at My Table, Why We Feed Wild Birds and Why It Matters, and Feeding the Birds at Your Table, a guide for Australia. Thanks again for listening. I'll see you later. <laughs>